Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. All right, boys and girls, let's open our Bibles. Um, so I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that we as American citizens have a right to petition our government, right? I think that's accurate. Uh, they hadn't taken that away yet. Um, and um, I hear a lot of people complaining twice a year on Sunday when they come to church on Iron Man Sunday that, that bicycles were in the way. And we always complain to ourselves about it, but we don't ever do anything about it. And so, so I've got a petition that's available after the service if anybody wants to sign that. Uh, I've sent that to some other churches um, just asking for them to reconsider the route of the bicycle race. And so it's not ugly, uh, it's not nasty, it just says it's dangerous and we as the citizens of our community would like to see a change there. So I'm gonna put this down here. I'm not gonna pass it around because uh, I don't think it's got a place for passing around, but, uh, but I do want to uh, just leave that there. So if you wanna put your name on it, feel free to do so when you get ready to leave today. Don't rush up here right now and don't like sneak up here during the invitation to sign it. Pastor, I don't want to pray. I just want to sign the document. So don't do that. So I don't know if you've seen the movie Taken or not. Uh, it's the movie with Liam Neeson, probably one of my favorite actors. Liam Neeson's just a great actor. Um, he's that CIA agent, and he gets on the phone. One of the best scenes in the movie is when he gets on the phone with these kidnappers, and he says he's got a particular set of skills. And, uh, and, and like, that's just, if, if you're a movie buff, that's one of those classic scenes, I've got a particular set of skills. Um, in the first movie, if you know what happened, this has been around for a long time, so it's not a spoiler or anything. His daughter gets kidnapped as part of a trafficking ring, um, and he has to hunt down the kidnappers to rescue his daughter. And of course he does, and he, he you know, just, I mean, it's brutal. It's incredible. Um, there's a sequel, and so... But the fact that there's a sequel tells you that everybody got through the first one. So if you haven't seen the first one, just the fact that there's a sequel tells you that everybody, got, everybody was okay except for the kidnappers from the first movie. But the sequel is where the kidnappers, the ones who survive, are looking for revenge against Liam Neeson's character. So they kidnap him and his wife. And there's a scene right after Liam Neeson gets kidnapped. It's one of the coolest scenes in movies. He get, he's in the back of the kidnapper's van. He's got the typical hood and blindfold on. And his character shows this incredible example of situational awareness. I'm going to show you the clip in just a second. But what you see in the clip is he's listening to his watch ticking. He's counting the seconds that go by on his watch, and he's listening to the sounds that he's passing as he goes, as he's being kidnapped, and he's trying to use all that information to figure out where he's going to end up. Um, and so he's making this mental map. You guys show the scene, and, uh, and you'll, you'll get a picture of it. Absolutely incredible. I don't know if that's realistic at all, but Liam Neeson sells it like it's, like it's possible. I don't know, but, uh, but I think it's absolutely incredible. And in the case of his character, that awareness helps to save his life. He's able to listen to what's going on. He's able to somehow get in touch with his daughter, and it's able to actually save his life and, and help him to get rescued. Uh, now, we understand it's good for us to be aware of what's going on around us. Hopefully, you never find yourself in the same predicament as that particular movie, but there's something to be said about being aware. Uh, like my wife will tell you, I don't like to sit in a restaurant with my back to the door. How many of y'all are like that? Like you walk in and like, like, no, I do not want my back to the door because if something hits the fan, I want to see it coming. 
Uh, you know, I want to know what's about to happen if, if it's about to go bad. Now, what's awkward is if they put you in the middle of the restaurant and there's a bunch of people on one side and there's a door on the other side and you're kind of in this anyway. Um, I want to know what's going on. I want to be aware of what's happening. I love preaching on Sunday morning because I can see what's going on. I know what's happening. Uh, we could probably reinforce that a little bit better. But I like to know what's happening. I like to know what's going on. We're about to move into a section of 1 Thessalonians, and it's perhaps probably the, the best-known section in the book. Uh, I've probably referenced this section in just about every funeral that I've preached, and we understand that it's something about situational awareness, but here Paul is not talking about situational awareness, he's talking about our spiritual awareness. Are we paying attention to what's going on around us? Uh, but again, this is even more than just our awareness of the things of God. It's more than just knowing what God's plans, purposes, and priorities are for our world. This is about being sensitive to the Spirit in terms of, of knowing what's happening in the end. These next few weeks, we're going to be challenged in an awareness about one of those aspects of life that for some of us is most mysterious. Let's be honest, for some it's the most terrifying. Paul is asking us to approach death from a position of awareness. Uh, even as we approach a generation that's truly going to be taken. You think about that. There is going to be a generation that's going to be alive at Jesus' return. And we're, we're working that direction. Like, we're closer today than we were yesterday. And so, so we know that's the direction that we are taking. So we're going to jump in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. We're going to be in this, in this topic for about four weeks. So we're going to really di- uh, dive deep into this idea of Jesus' return and rapture and all those things that go along with it. So we're going we're gonna to camp out here for just a little bit. So if you're able, would you stand as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning there in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, some translations say unaware, brothers, about those who were asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for not leaving us unaware, for giving us the information that we need so that we can be wise, so that we can be prepared, so that we can be ready. Uh, Lord, even so that we can approach those hardships in our own life, such as death, uh, in a way that is honoring to you. God, I pray you'd bless the, the study of your word today, for it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. I have this thumb laying on the pulpit up here. I'm going to put it away because it's a distraction just seeing a, a severed thumb laying here on the pulpit. I could leave it for you when you come back up here, but uh, <laughs> this week uh, we lost a giant in the um, modern evangelical church. I don't know if you've paid attention at all, but uh, Tim Keller Uh, actually passed away this week. He was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Somehow or another, a Christian pastor was able to go into the belly of the beast in New York City and plant a church that reached thousands. Uh, Keller, of course, uh, has fought cancer over the last several years uh, and, of course, uh, pancreatic cancer. He lost his battle therein. The last words that he shared with his family were simple yet profoundly true. He said, there is no downside to me leaving, not in the slightest. What what an incredible way to say goodbye. 
everyone's grieving, everyone's sad, there's sorrow, but for the person who's about to leave this life and go into the next, there is no downside to me leaving, not in the slightest. Of course, the Apostle Paul recognized to live is Christ, but to die is gain. There is no downside to me leaving, not in the slightest. We can see that, as Keller has shown us, even in death, God is glorified. If you look up the death of Tim Keller online, you will find that all sorts of news outlets have covered his death. I was actually quite surprised to find out just how widespread the coverage of his death actually was. CNN had an article about Keller's death. Um, Christianity Today, of course, had an article about uh, Keller's death. I even saw that Deseret News, if you don't know what that is, that's the Latter-day Saints media outlet. That's the Mormon newspaper, so to speak. They even reported on Tim Keller's death saying, on Friday, Christianity in America lost one of its most, trust, most important trusted guides, Tim Keller. And that was coming from the, the, the official news outlet of the Mormon church. As we approach this passage today, we're going to be automatically challenged to consider how we grieve. Because the reality is, is we all are going to face the loss of loved ones. It's inevitable. Uh, it's a guarantee that we will have to deal with the loss of our parents, of our spouses, and unfortunately, sometimes even our children. We deal with the death of friends and loved ones on a regular basis. But the question for us becomes very simple. Do we agree with Keller's assessment of his own death, which is bathed in Christian hope, or does our experience of grief take on the characteristic of those who lack hope? With that being said, let's go ahead and jump into this passage. And Paul shifts on us. We've been talking about uh, how to love in the body of Christ. We've been talking about how to live lives that are pleasing to, to the Lord. But we get this shift that happens there in verse 13. And the way that he transitions these from, from where we were to where we're going now, it, it tells me that this was a large part of what, um, of what the Thessalonians did not get communicated to them. If you remember Acts chapter 17, he had to leave. He had to depart quickly. He didn't finish his ministry there. He's been lamenting throughout the whole letter that he didn't finish. He didn't, he didn't have the opportunity to say everything. And so it tells me that, uh, that he got here and he says, you know, we've got some instruction we've got to give. There's some things that, that these people need to know. And so it tells me that, that this is where his, his instruction came up short. And because there was, he, he, was, he didn't get to finish, there was confusion in the church. And as we know today, there's still confusion in the church. If you want to stir up confusion in your Sunday school class, just start asking about death, dying, and last things. And there's lots of different opinions, lots of different ideas. Some people pull their chart out and, and explain to you everything in a, in a timeline. Some people are more confused. We, we understand that in funerals, people say dumb things. Uh, maybe you've been at a funeral and somebody came up and said something, something that you said, man, that was just dumb. Like, here, my favorite thing to never say at a funeral, heaven got another angel today. They didn't. Heaven did not get an angel. You, when you die, will not become an angel. You will not sprout wings. You likely don't even have a harp to play on a floating cloud somewhere. You do not become an angel when you die. Do not tell somebody that heaven got another angel. That is not helpful because it's not biblical. Much of what we believe about last things has been informed by something other than the Bible. 
If we want to understand what happens in the end, the first place we should look is not to what pop culture says or what Oprah Winfrey says or what your television celebrity says. The first place we should look should be the Word of God. As with most things, the more we build on an unstable foundation, the less dependable that structure becomes. We don't want to be uninformed. We want to be aware. We want to know. We want to have the truth. Paul begins with this statement, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters. And this is the point. We cannot approach death from a position of ignorance. God has not left us unaware. There's a long list of topics that I don't know anything about. Uh, some of you work in career fields where I don't know the first thing about what you do. You show up at your workplace, you go into a building, and you come home at the end of the day. I have no idea what you do when you go into that building. You can ask me my opinion about those things, and I can honestly say I don't have a clue. I could try to give you an opinion, but I would be faking it completely. But the one thing you could say to me is, I don't want you to be uninformed, unaware, and then maybe you could help me understand just a little bit about the topic. You could say, hey, come shadow me at work, and you'll learn something about what I do during the day. My son works at a Navy base. He works on nuclear submarines, and he tries to tell me with coded language what he can and can't do and what he can and can't talk about because of all the security clearances and everything like that. At the end of the day, I don't have a clue what he does. He's my son. But I don't know what the boy does. He goes to a Navy base, and, and I don't know. They may be aliens that he's working with. On, on, I don't know. I don't have a clue. And so you say, How, what do you think about his job? I don't know what, he, what his job is. I don't know. I hope he doesn't get radiated. I don't know what he does. He could tell me, but then he'd get in trouble. So we just have to be in. I mean, he may be the janitor on a submarine. I don't know. I don't know. He said, Dad, let me, let me tell you what I do. And maybe then I could have a little bit of insight. Paul says, you don't need to be uninformed. Here is information that you can glean. Here, you can learn something here. This is not off, off topic. This is not something you should stay away from. You can know what's going on. The church at Thessalonica was struggling, though, with a lack of information when it came to the death of their loved ones. They didn't know what to do. They didn't have the information. And while there is much we do not understand about death, the Bible does not leave us unaware or uninformed. God has given us what we need to know. Now, I won't lie, there may be some things God has told us that can be challenging. If you want to go dig around in the book of Revelation and go in there unassisted, you might get confused. I get confused when I start digging around in those eschatological books. So there are things that are certainly challenging. And it's easy to see when you're reading the book of Revelation why sometimes people's eyes cross when they're reading it. But what we're dealing with here is fairly simple. Paul talks to the church. There are those who have died in Paul's euphemism for those who have died, is simply this. They have fallen asleep. How do we process that from the perspective of a Christian? How do we deal with that? Well, the fact of the matter is God is faithful to give us exactly what we need to deal with the idea of death and dying. But I also believe this. Satan would much rather you remain uninformed and ignorant about the topic. 
Because if Satan can keep you in the dark, then he can help breed fear in your heart. If he can keep you uninformed, then he can help breed distrust in your heart. If he can keep all of this shrouded in darkness, then he can breed discontent and doubt in your heart. But the Bible wants us to know some things so that we can avoid doubt and dismay and fear. And one of the things the Bible speaks of about death is it is a temporary situation. It is a temporary situation. Paul refers to those who are dead as simply asleep. Now, sometimes people try to twist this around and say that it's some kind of purgatory or soul sleep, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I believe he's simply using it as a metaphor to help communicate what happens in death. And the reason we know that he's not talking about purgatory or soul sleep or any of those other kinds of things that are out there is when Jesus was hanging on the cross next to those thieves, he had one thief that was hurling insults and one thief that was hurling, that was offering praise. Jesus looked at the thief who was offering praise and he said, what? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not a thousand years from now, but today, when all this is said and done, when we breathe our last, today, you will be with me in paradise. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Meaning that when we are no longer in these bodies, when these bodies are laid to rest in the grave, when we are no longer with our physical bodies, we are still at home with the Lord. Not in some soul sleep, not in some purgatory where we're being perfected as it is taught in some, some circles. We are at home with the Lord. Now this means... What we believe has consequences. There are some facts that we have to consider. We understand there's a resurrection coming. That is the hope that we have as Christians, that there is a resurrection coming. So there is a, there is a season when we are away from our bodies, when our bodies are in the grave awaiting resurrection, that, that sort of intermediate state. We know that there will be a day where the resurrection, where our souls are reunited with our bodies. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Our bodies at death are returned to the earth awaiting the day of resurrection. So our loved ones who have died in Christ are with Jesus waiting for the resurrection. And this is a blessed state of existence to be with Jesus, and to know that we are with Jesus. So when we stand up at the funeral and we say, we say so-and-so is with Jesus, that is 100% true, that is 100% certain, and there is coming a day that so-and-so will be reunited with their body at the resurrection, and they will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be glorious. If we are in Christ, we will inhabit that new creation forever and ever in a state of moral perfection without sin. For those who are not Christians, they do not cease to exist, as the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Their soul is cast into the place of punishment known as Hades or hell. Everyone in the room will die at some point, unless you were here when Jesus returns. And immediately upon your death, you will experience separation of soul from body. Your soul will be in the presence of Jesus in a place called heaven, or your soul will go to a place of separation from God. Both are one-way tickets. We don't get to go there and say, I don't like it, the temperature's too hot, can I choose the other place? No, it doesn't work that way. But then there will come a day where soul is reunited with the body and those who are in Christ will dwell with Jesus in a new creation and those who who are not will be cast into a lake of fire where they will bear the punishment for their rebellion against God for all eternity. 
We don't talk about this much because it's not very encouraging. It's not very happy to think about. You may not like that, but my job this morning is to do what Paul says here and make sure that we are all aware. No one should not be aware of this information. But we understand that in Christ, death is temporary. Paul goes on to remind us something very important. Grief and despair are two different things. I love the fact that Paul does give permission to grieve the death of friends and loved ones. Sometimes Christians struggle with that. I shouldn't grieve. Well, you should grieve. Grief is a natural response. We recognize that that Jesus experienced grief when Lazarus was dead in the tomb. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but when he saw what was happening, Jesus grieved with his friends. He grieved with those that he loved. And because Jesus experienced grief, he didn't do it in a sinful way. We understand that grief in and of itself is not sinful. Grief is built into our programming as human beings. If you do not experience grief, I would say that, that the inability to experience grief is indicative of a hard heart or unresolved sin. Grief should be normal, a normal part of our experience as Christians because those we love are no longer with us. We grieve that. That is natural. But in Christ, Christian grief is necessarily different. Paul says we are not to grieve as people who have no hope. This is why we must be informed Because being informed about the truth gives us hope. In the movie I referenced earlier, the idea of someone being kidnapped is traumatic. Why? Because we know there are no guarantees about the outcome. In a kidnapping situation, there's no guarantees. There's no no certainty that someone's going to be rescued. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. I remember we went to Disney World. I guess it's probably been, goodness gracious, 13 years ago. Um, Matthew was just a baby, Gabe was eight, and Matthew was with the grandparents, and Heather and Gabe and I got on to a ride. What was the ride? It's closed now because it's racist. Uh, uh, Yeah, Splash Mountain, that one. Um, And we were in the queue, and we got into the cart expecting Gabe to come with us, and Gabe got separated from us at the ride station there. And so Heather and I are in the cart going to go on the ride, and our eight-year-old is not with us, and there is no one else in our party. So we are going, and we have been separated from our child, and this is a mortifying experience for us. We get onto the ride, we finish, and we get off, and we are, we are panicked because what's happened to our eight-year-old? What's happened to our son? Has he been kidnapped by child traffickers in the middle of Splash Mountain? Did he get on the ride and fall out and drown? What happened to our kid? We panicked. We didn't know what the outcome was going to be. We hoped he'd be on the cart behind us and everything would be fine, but we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Church, I want to encourage you today. We do not have to face death with that same level of uncertainty and panic. We do not. We grieve, but our grief is colored with hope because we know the outcome. Sometimes, though, we allow grief to to creep into its more sinister cousin. You know what the sinister cousin of grief is? It's despair. Despair happens when we have no assurance, when we have no confidence, when we have no hope. There's not like a line we cross where, where I'm grieving, I'm grieving, I'm grieving, now I'm despair. It's a slippery slope of, of going from grief 
to despair. But when does that begin? Well, the answer to that question lies in your own heart. Grief becomes despair when you've lost sight of God's promises and God's word, when you are no longer trusting in God, but you're overwhelmed by the circumstances. Paul even said that there's no room for despair in our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We never want to make light of the reality of our grief. We've all experienced it. Some of us continue to experience it today. But I would caution us that we need to be on guard against the sin of despair. And I do believe that despair is a sin because despair is a disregard of God's promises and an ignoring of his faithfulness. We slip into despair when we begin to lose trust in God's faithfulness and God's ability to keep his promises. Despair, it's grief, but it's grief that's not tempered by hope but is stained by disbelief. That is when we begin to stumble into despair. And the reason we can have hope is because Jesus is alive. Our hope is secured by the resurrection. This is spelled out as clearly as it can be spelled out there in verse 14. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those who are dead in Christ, Jesus' resurrection guarantees their home, their own. Our hope is based in our belief, our faith in the resurrection. That is why Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. If there is no resurrection, then Christians ought to be pitied. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 says this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. People who don't have Jesus don't have very much to look forward to. But if you are a Christian today, then the knowledge of Jesus' resurrection informs our response to our experience of death in our life here. Yes, it hurts. We all know it hurts. We've been down the road. We know the pain that it causes, and that is called grief, and it is appropriate in our response to loss. But that's as far as it gets to go because we understand that death is a temporary state that will one day, finally and eternally, be interrupted by the resurrection of the dead. Which is why we cannot allow our grief to become debilitating. Because our grief is always colored with Christian hope. You may be perplexed by it. You may not understand it. You may have questions. But Paul said that even as you are perplexed, you may not be moved to despair. You may not have all the answers, and you may not even be able to articulate everything without more study, without more time in the Word, but you know enough 
to prevent your grief from turning to despair. Which raises a question. What should our lives look like in light of the hope that we have in Christ? One, our evangelistic zeal should be amplified. What do I mean by that? If we believe what we believe about death, then that is incredibly consequential. If we recognize that death is temporary, but the spiritual state which we enter into is permanent, then that actually means something. You don't find anything in the Bible that says there are options beyond the grave. You don't get to, get to hell and say, you know, this, is, this isn't the best. Let me change course here. Let me pivot right here. You don't get to do that. There's no doubt that the resurrection is a source of hope for us, but those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, death is a different story. I once attended a funeral for someone had a very rough life. Their life was marked by all kinds of addiction, all kinds of things that, um, that we would characterize the carnal man with. But in the years before his death, he gave his life to Jesus. He turned over the addictions, turned over the drugs, turned over everything, gave his life to Jesus, started walking a brand new path. Guess what? The fact that that man was only a Christian for a couple of years was irrelevant to the outcome. He turned to Jesus and he got, a, he got the golden ticket. He got to go to heaven because he, he followed Jesus Christ. But his friends, a lot of his friends did not make the same decision. A lot of his friends were still, their lives were still marked with addiction and sin and rebellion. And I sat in that funeral for that man, and what I witnessed during that funeral, the pain that I witnessed in that funeral was almost visceral. I almost feel it as people cried out in in what I could only describe as utter despair. And it was utter despair because it was utterly hopeless. There was no hope in the room because those who were gathered there did not know Jesus. Now, the preacher shared the gospel. I can only hope that some of those who heard it responded. But listen, if we truly believe what we say we believe, then it can't help but have consequences about our zeal for the gospel. If we believe that people are in Christ, spending eternity with Jesus, not in Christ, spending eternity away from Jesus in hell, if we believe that, then how do we look at our family members who don't know Jesus and be okay with that situation? How do we look at our coworkers who don't know Jesus and be okay with that situation? How do we look at our children who don't know Jesus and be okay with that situation? We can't. If we believe what we say we believe, then there are consequences. Secondly, the body of Christ should be a place of refuge, not a place of pain. When we gather as the church, I want you to understand this this morning, this is an outpost for heaven. That's what this is. I mean, look around the room. These are people who love and serve Jesus. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going to go to heaven when they die. We sing praises to Jesus. We study his word. Everyone says, I love Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. So when we gather, this is a snapshot of heaven. I think it's probably a little more diverse than we are, but it's a snapshot of heaven. We are imperfect, certainly. But this is the only place that is trying to encourage one another about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You're not gonna go to the pub on Friday night and be encouraged about the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. You're not gonna go to the ball game and be encouraged about the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. The only place that it happens is in the church and maybe Chick-fil-A. Nowhere else comes close. Too many times, and listen, I love you, 
but I see this happen and it concerns me. Too many times when we experience death, we start to drift away from the body of Christ. But again, if we believe what we say we believe, then the body of Christ is the number one place that I want to be when I'm dealing with grief and pain because I'm surrounded by people who share my hope and reinforce what I believe to be true. Why would I not want to be with the people of God when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death? Why would I not want to be with people who share my hope of the resurrection when I need my hope in the resurrection more than anything else? Why would I not want to be around the people of God? Paul ends chapter 4 with a simple but important sentence. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. That is what the body is for, to encourage one another in these words. The word, the worship, the people, this heavenly outpost is a shadow of the good things that are coming. And I love to think that my loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord, that they are singing praises to Jesus in heaven in a way that magnifies the way that we sing praises to Jesus here. It doesn't compare, but it's got to be a shadow of what heaven's going to be like, a dim reflection of where our loved one is experiencing in the presence of Jesus. Finally, and I think this is very important, the commission is greater than the calendar. The commission is greater than the calendar. As we get into the next couple of weeks... There's going to be a strong urge for some of us to get the charts out. Y'all seen the charts before. They explain the, how Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Zephaniah and Malachi and Revelation, they all tie in together. And there's a, somebody's done the math and they figured it all out. And there's a chart. It like folds out of the Bible. It's a Baptist centerfold. It flips right out. And here it is. And those charts are going to be there to help us understand all kinds of answers to questions. But I will tell you this. The chart is helpful. But that chart is just like the wall full of commentaries that I've got in my office. It was written by men and it was put together to try to help us understand better. But those commentaries are not the word of God. Neither is the chart that folds out. It's not the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. Understand this. There are people who want to argue about timelines and timetables, and they've got the charts and the graphs and the timing to go with it. But I would argue this. Those things are secondary to the primary thing that God has called us to do, the things that God we know has appointed for us in this world. The things that we know are this. God has appointed for everyone to die, except for that generation who's alive in Christ. That, that we know that. We may not want to think about it, but we know that. We know that there will be a generation that is alive at the resurrection. Paul talks about it here. This is the, the emphasis here. The Thessalonians are concerned about those who've died and those who are still alive, wondering who's going to go first. There will be a generation that is alive at the resurrection. And Paul says it here. Those who are asleep will rise first. There will be a generation who is alive at the resurrection who will see the resurrection. I'd love being in a cemetery when the resurrection happens if the Lord let me be alive. What a sight that would be. Beyond that, though, we're dabbling in a certain degree of mystery. It's an interesting conversation, but if that conversation about the calendar is a distraction from our calling and our commission, then the calendar is not helping us very much. Now, 
There's much more to say about this, and we'll be digging into it more in the next couple of weeks. And I'm the last guy who's gonna stand up and make predictions and prophecies. <laughs> there have been a lot of people who've tried that over the years, and it didn't always, we're still here, so they didn't get it right. One thing is for certain, though, we live in a day and a generation where people are thinking about this. Because I think we all recognize that these are unsettled times that we live in. We, we see a land war in Europe bigger than anything that's happened in most of our lifetime. We, we see economic situations that are unsteady. I was giving somebody a hard time. Georgia, <laughs> Georgia has allowed you to, uh, to put your driver's license on your iPhone now. And uh, somebody said, well, what can we do with it? I said, well, I'm sure it'll help us buy and sell things eventually. Uh, you know, I mean, we see these things and we think, oh, wow, that Mark of the Beast thing, that, that, that like, that, that's closer now than it, than it was yesterday. We see these things. We know these things are, are, are unfolding. And so we know that people are thinking about these things. But as people ask these questions about these issues, that's where we as God's people would be wise to be informed about what the Word of God says, not what pop culture says or what pop theology says, but what God says from His Word. And what we will find, in spite of where there may be disagreements about timelines and timetables and all those sort of things, I believe this, what we will find is that God's plan for your future and God's plan for my future is for our good. I believe that. I believe that regardless of when we get to heaven, it's going to be a splendid place. Whether you get snatched out of here seven years before it gets real bad or you got to live through it all, I believe it's going to be a splendid place when we get to heaven. I believe that that new, new heaven and new earth is going to be a place beyond our wildest imaginations. I believe it is going to be an incredible, incredible, unimaginable way to spend eternity. But more than the streets of gold, more than the pearly gates, more than all those images that we conjure up, we get to be with Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King. And for those who are asleep today, beloved, hear me in this, they're already with him. They're in his presence each and every single moment. And so when we gather as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we lift praises to our King knowing that those who are asleep in Christ have been worshiping since they got there. What a day it will be. And I can promise you this, that what God has in store for us is far better than any other offerings that are out there. There won't be any story that's better than the story of heaven once all God's people have gathered. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for speaking clarity into a situation where, Lord, sometimes we don't have all the answers. Sometimes we find ourselves confused. Sometimes we struggle with how to grieve. But I thank you, Lord, that our grief is colored not by despair, but that our grief is colored by hope. I thank you, Lord, that we see that the gospel has consequences, that Following Jesus is not, just a, it's not just a casual decision that we make. Following Jesus has eternal consequences. And so God, I pray, particularly right now, in this moment, that if there's any in this room today who've not given their life to Jesus, that today, Father, they would recognize the consequences of failing to do so. You have been very clear. You have not left us unaware or uninformed. The wages of sin 
is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's so clear, Lord, to to think that we would reject that offer. But so many do. I pray today, God, that no one in this room or no one who watches this online would reject that offer. They can choose to follow Jesus or they could go their own way and bear the cost. I thank you, Lord, that in Christ the punishment's been doled out. The wages have been paid. And our own resurrection is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.